Welcome to another edition of Fair Territory. I am back from London, a lot jet lagged, not a little jet lagged, and I'm coming to you again from an undisclosed location, parts unknown. You don't need to know where I am. It's not important. We're going to have a great show. We're going to have a lot of fun talking about some really important issues going on within the game of baseball right now. We're going to get to London and all that, but first I want to talk about three different areas. Let's start with Aaron Judge. You might have noticed on Saturday, Judge revealed that he has a torn ligament in that right big toe. Kind of set off alarm bells. People saying, well, that might be more serious than initially believed. Aaron Boone the next day said, no, it's not that bad. Don't worry. It's the same thing as before. A sprain. Whatever. It's semantics, however you want to describe it. Bottom line, Judge hasn't played in three weeks. The Yankees are 8-10 and 10 without him. And before I get into the Yankees, I want to go back to the injury, back to Dodger Stadium, and that exposed area of the outfield wall where Judge hit when he made that spectacular catch when he hit his foot. That area has now been covered. They've padded it. They did the same thing in Miami after Jazz Chisholm Jr. suffered a similar injury, exposed bottom part of the wall, earlier this season. Now, I know these things don't happen every day. In fact, it had not happened at Dodger Stadium in 60 years. That said, Major League Baseball needs to check all the walls, immediately if not sooner. These kinds of things should never occur. These types of injuries due to basically exposed parts of concrete in outfield walls. No, cover them up. Make sure there are none left in this sport. Okay, now to the Yankees. As I mentioned, they are 8-10 without Judge. Granted, they've won four of their last six against Seattle and Texas. Pretty impressive homestand. Still, they're averaging three runs per game, a little bit over three runs per game without Aaron Judge. You remember Hal Steinbrenner, the owner, back at the start of this said, we need more out of our veteran players. You might remember last week, we kind of named the veterans dorks of the week because they haven't produced. Well, let's update the numbers because the veterans still are not producing and it is still a problem. Look at this. The Yankees without Aaron Judge since June 4th. Glaber Torres, 12 for 63, 652 OPS. He's the hot one. Anthony Rizzo, 10 for 58, 528. Josh Donaldson, 4 for 40, 521 OPS. DJ LeMahieu, 7 for 42, 496 OPS. Giancarlo Stanton, admittedly a big hit yesterday, but he's still 6 for 55 with a 379 OPS. Now, the Yankees hold currently a wild card spot. They're in decent shape, and they do expect to get Judge back eventually. We don't know when. So at some point, these guys that we just talked about are going to have to hit. Can't all be Billy McKinney and Jake Bowers and Willie Calhoun. The Yankees are going to need to get it going offensively. All right, let's shift coast here. Let's go out to the West Coast, where the Angels had a most interesting weekend. And I've been telling you for weeks, and so have many others, that the Angels are not trading Shohei Otani. And they've said that publicly, but I don't believe a word that is said by club officials starting around this time of year. Actually, pretty much any time of year, but especially this time of year. But the proof is in the actions of the club on how they're approaching this season and why they are not trading Otani, why they are going for it in his final year before free agency. Look at what the Angels did in the offseason when they brought in Tyler Anderson and Brandon Drury and Gio Urshela and more. Look at what they've done since the season started, promoting two picks from the 2022 draft, Zach Neto and Ben Joyce, 
And now look at what they did this weekend. Traded for Eduardo Escobar, traded for Mike Moustakas, brought back David Fletcher, who had been in the minor leagues. These guys are essentially replacements for Neto, who had been really good as a rookie, but has an oblique. Urshela, who probably is out for the season with a pelvis injury. And third baseman Anthony Rendon, who's got a wrist. He seems like he's coming back fairly soon. Now, they're going to do some interesting things, mixing and matching in the infield. They've got Moustakas at first base, most likely, against right-handers. He'll be there with Drury and Renfro. Those guys can play against lefties. They've got Escobar at third base, at least until Rendon comes back. Then they'll probably bounce Escobar around a little bit. Fletcher will be at shortstop with Andrew Velasquez. And at second base, Drury and Rengifo, however they want to kind of mix and match it. It's an interesting approach, what they're doing. And it demonstrates the urgency that they're showing. And I give a lot of credit here to their GM, Perry Manasian. Perry, from the moment he has taken this job, has been on high alert, has been active, aggressive, all the things you want your GM to be. Now, it's not all going to work. never does. But this is a guy who is trying to get this team to the playoffs. And if they get to the playoffs and maybe do something in the playoffs, heaven forbid, then maybe, maybe the Angels actually might have a shot at keeping Otani if, of course, owner Artie Moreno is willing to spend the money. That remains to be seen. But here they are, one game out of the wild card. They're doing some things to make themselves better. They get Rendon back. They'll get Neto back eventually. At that point, they can do what they need to do if they need to do anything with Escobar, Moustakas, whoever else. But I like what the approach is. I like the aggressiveness. It's what a team in their position should do, especially when you face the potential loss of Shohei Otani as a free agent. All right, finally, as we continue on here, I want to talk, and we've talked a lot about this particular subject as well, about some of the disappointing teams in the National League in particular. I could do the American League too. Mariners, White Sox, right down the line. But let's stick with the National League for this week. The Mets, the Padres, the Cardinals. Now, I caught the Cardinals act on Fox Saturday. It wasn't a good act at all. They came back yesterday, beat the Cubs. That was a good win for them. They've actually won four of their last six, but I am not sold. The Mets, the $364 million Mets with the penalties, $430 million, whatever the number is. The Mets have lost 15 of their last 20. They are a season-high seven games under 500. The New York Mets, this automatic playoff team. And then San Diego Padres. This is a team that is four under still. They've lost seven of their last 11. They got swept at home this weekend, swept at home by the Washington Nationals. Oh, remember that? That's the team they traded everybody to to get Juan Soto. So these three teams, I want to show you something right here that is really interesting about them and just where they are in the division. This is the division now. St. Louis, eight and a half games out, and that's in the NL Central, one of the weakest divisions in the game. Really, the second week is to the AL Central. The Padres, nine and a half out. The Mets, 15 games back. And you might say, okay, no problem. They'll do better in the wild card standings. That's where they can make their run. Yeah, that's true. That's where they can make their run. Let's take a look at the wild card standings. And we'll show you just how close they are in that regard. The three wild card leaders right now, Miami, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. Then you have three more teams. 
the Brewers, the Phillies, the Cubbies. And then you get to the Padres, six and a half out in the wild card race. The Mets, eight out in the wild card race. And the Cardinals, 11 out. They're actually closer in the division because they play in such a poor division. It's late June, folks. And you can say, well, look at the 2019 Nationals, the 2021 Braves, the 2022 Phillies. I get it. But guess what? You saw the standings just now. They're not all going to make the playoffs, these three teams. In fact, it might turn out that none of them make the playoffs. Now, yes, I expect some regression. I still think the Cardinals can win the Central if they make some good trades and get their acts together. But we haven't seen it. The Padres... They are fully capable of mounting a strong run, at least getting a wild card. We haven't really seen it. The Mets, 15 of their last 20? We're not seeing it, folks. And as Xander Bogart said, Xander, of course, the big free agent signing for the San Diego Padres this offseason, there aren't a lot of tomorrows left. I might be overstating it a bit. There are actually a lot of tomorrows left. But these teams have been intensely disappointing and they haven't given their fans, in each case, much hope for a turnaround. So let's keep our eyes on the National League. We'll get to the American League's disappointing teams at some point as well. Time now for the Inside Dish. This is the segment every week where I talk about a story I've written, maybe something I've been up to, maybe something that's going on in the game that really needs more exposure. Well, I have an obvious choice this week on what to discuss, and it's the London series. I had a blast over there. It was three plus days. It wasn't very long, but it is so much fun going over there, experiencing that ballpark, experiencing the city, which is one of the great cities I've ever been to, and just the whole idea of playing Major League Baseball in an English Premier League stadium. It's cool. So the crowds were great, 55,000 roughly in each case, Saturday and Sunday. The games were much better than the last time when the Yankees played the Red Sox. The field was good. Everything worked out really nicely. The thing I don't know, the thing I question, is how much of an impact are these games making? And yes, the crowds were great, but I suspect, I don't know this for sure, that a large percentage of the crowd was comprised of two separate groups. One, expats from the United States, people living over in London who are American, who just want to get a taste of baseball. And two, tourists. Now, I know there were a lot of tourists there because I saw them when I was walking around the city myself, Cubs jerseys, Cubs shirts, Cardinals jerseys, Cardinals shirts. So it seems to me that that is the bulk of the audience live for these games. Now, that doesn't mean baseball shouldn't try to make an impact or inroads in Europe. The idea that they have is that the European sports fan is hardcore, granted mostly soccer or football, and in England, cricket as well. But these fans are intensely passionate, like fans, for instance, in the Northeast. That's how Chase Utley described it to me. So if you can get maybe even a tiny percentage of that audience, then you've got something. But how long does that take? What does it take to get there? These are all valid questions. And Utley pointed out one thing to me that was really interesting when I wrote that article about him last week. He said there are only three or four youth leagues in London comprised of about 100 kids each. So when you talk about the distance baseball has to go, it's considerable. And frankly, the biggest impact, it seems to me, was Great Britain's performance in the World Baseball Classic. Remember, their upset of Columbia, that was their first win ever in the WBC. 
and that qualified them for the next tournament in a few years hence. So by doing that, by advancing, the Great Britain team opened up a lot more funding for their future endeavors, for youth programs, for facilities, for equipment, all the things that you would need to get baseball going. Now, one of the interesting things when I was there was meeting reporters from several other European countries who did have a knowledge of baseball, who in fact cover baseball. Obviously, there were reporters from England there, but I also was interviewed by a reporter from France on television. I met a reporter from Hungary. I met another reporter from Poland. And these folks were into it. They like baseball. There is passion for baseball, at least in their worlds. So this is not a hopeless cause by any stretch of the imagination. It just seems that it's going to be difficult. And hey, some things you got to try and you got to put your foot down in these countries and see where you go. Next year, another game in London. That's going to be Mets-Phillies. The year after, I guess it's not official yet, but they're talking about Paris. And that would be really cool as well. Now, I want to give you my favorite story from the weekend. You would think my favorite story might involve the Cubs, might involve the Cardinals, might involve actual baseball. But no, it does not involve any of those things. My favorite story occurred when we were going out for dinner, our Fox Sports group. This was Friday night, the night before the game. We had a big group dinner. It was Derek Jeter's first time as a member of our team. And we all went out together, about 20 of us. As we got into some cars to go to this restaurant where we were going to eat, I was right behind Big Poppy. I was about to get into the same car as Big Poppy. And let me show you the video of what occurred. Let me show you what was, ah, hold on. And let me show you what happened as we broadcast to the world on our pregame show Saturday. Last night, an, an eventful night for us as we went out to dinner. You see, Big Poppy, who does wear a lot of bling, happened to drop his down a sewer. <laughs> Look oh, at that! Oh, oh. It fell off the neck, and the hotel worker went and got it. Now, how much tip did you give that guy? Big time tips. <laughs> Big Over time under tip. $25. He just saved 100 grand for me right there. <laughs> I thought I totally lost, and all of a sudden, Poppy, here's your bling. I'm like, hundred dollars. My man. <laughs> what what is a tip on a save of a hundred grand? Would you say uh, for Poppy, fifty cents? <laughs> <laughs> all right. First of all, Poppy's tip. He was talking about a number that started with a five, but was a lot bigger than fifty cents. Second, the fact that they got that chain out to me is something of a miracle. I will never forget this. When it went down the grate. And I saw it come off his neck and go into the grate, into the sewer, underneath London. <laughs> it came off because he had not locked it properly. But anyway, this grate, it looked to me like it had been sealed going back to the Tudor dynasty, like hundreds of years. I was thinking, there's no way they're going to get that grate up. And the sewer wasn't particularly deep. It was kind of shallow. So I thought, okay, if they can get in there... Yeah, maybe there's a chance. So we all go to dinner. Poppy's just hoping things are going to work out, as they often do work out for him. And we get to the dinner, and before the first course is even served, Poppy hears from the hotel. He gets those videos that we saw. All is well. And the key, at least in his mind, the hotel worker that you saw in the video, the guy who rescued Big Poppy's $100,000 necklace, which of course he 
announced to the world on our broadcast. Poppy claimed that, that guy was Dominican, and of course, that to him explained everything. So anyway, it's a lot of fun traveling with these guys, and for me, I always say this, and I can't say it enough, it's a real privilege to be part of these broadcasts, especially the special ones like the London series, postseason, of course, Field of Dreams, all of those kinds of games in particular. It's a thrill to be part of every broadcast. I'm grateful for every inning I'm on. But to be in this particular circumstance makes you remember quite vividly why you do this, why you get excited about it, just the fun of it all. And Big Poppy, well, he got his necklace back, so all is right with the world. Time now for the Dude and Dork of the Week. The Dude in my head this week was actually quite an interesting competition between two players on the same team. I was leaning toward Luis Arise. Leaning toward him because he is still flirting with 400 in late June. I know he's at 399 as we tape this on Monday. And he is defying the naysayers, the people who will say, oh, he'll never do this. Okay, it's going to be difficult for him to do. The people who point out to his batting average on balls in play and say, oh, look at that. It's ridiculous. The people who in general don't like batting average, you know who you are, Brian Kenny, at all. But as good as Arise has been, his teammate, Yuri Perez, has been arguably even better. He's the dude of the week, Yuri Perez, and I want you to take a look at the numbers he has compiled in his brief, and I mean brief, major league career. Here is Yuri Perez, 5-1 record, 1.34 ERA in 47 innings, 54 strikeouts, 15 walks. So that's averaging about 10 strikeouts per nine innings. Oh, and look at that. 21 straight scoreless innings. Now, that's the longest streak currently going on in Major League Baseball, and it's all the more impressive considering that he has those 21 straight scoreless innings and he is 20 years old. This guy is everything that the Marlins envisioned him being already. And at a time when they need him to be really good, Alcantara has not been himself. Trevor Rogers and Johnny Cueto have been on the injured list all season. They've gotten good work from Braxton Garrett and Jesus Lazardo, but really, they've needed Perez to step up. And their surprising season continues, in part, because he has been so dominant. So, dude of the week, Yuri Perez. Dork of the week, well, it stems from two rulings by the Major League Baseball Replay Center this week, one of which I thought was especially egregious, the other not as bad. And it goes back to the home play collision rule. Now, this rule was created after the injury to Buster Posey in 2014. It is a rule with the right intentions. It is a rule that has been largely successful, keeping catchers healthy, which is the entire idea. However, the interpretation of the rule can be rather baffling. And the one call that bugged me the most was the one on Jonah Heim of the Texas Rangers, likely an all-star this season, with Elvis Andrews of the White Sox steaming toward home plate. Now, Jonah Heim, after a review with the Major League Baseball Replay Center, was deemed guilty of blocking the plate illegally. It boggled my mind to see this. Now, you really can't tell from this photo why this call was so egregious. But you can see, even the NBC Sports Chicago crew, Jason Benetti and Steve Stone, couldn't believe the ruling. And I want to play you some sound from Bruce Bochy, manager of the Texas Rangers, a former Major League catcher, about just what he saw that night. 
you know, those guys, I mean, they're, they're not making a call. I get that. I just want to get clarification on on exactly what was called. I could hear and, uh, and and for that call to be made, it, I'm dumbfounded. It's absolutely one of the worst calls I've ever seen. Uh, and, and it was done by replay. I, I just don't get it. Uh, I don't care how many times they'll try to explain it. Uh, you, you can't do that uh, in that situation. Uh, it, it's a shame. It's embarrassing, really. You thought he had a clear lane to the play. What oh, did you see on the play? Yeah, he, he, there was never any contact with the catcher. It's a sweet tag. I, I, I don't get it. I, I really don't. I, I just, again, I'm shocked. Uh, you know, uh, Jonah did a great job there. Um, you know, the throw took him to the left a little bit. Sweet tag. I, I, I'm lost on this one. Uh, you know, that's, that's a tough one to take. Oshie is right. Andrews had a clear lane to the plate. It's undeniable, in my opinion. And when he referred to those guys at the start of that soundbite, he was talking about the umpires on the field. They're not the ones who make that call. The people who make that call are the umpires in the review center in New York, and they made it after the White Sox appealed, which is absolutely all well and good, looking for a little bit of a break. They got a little bit of a break. It happened again with Gary Sanchez in San Diego. Bob Melvin got ejected. He, too, is a former catcher. That one, again, did not appear as bad to me or as poor a call. But it does lend to the question, what exactly are catchers supposed to do? And in many cases, they still don't know. That is a problem. This week on Fox, I've got Guardians and Cubs at Wrigley Field. Looking forward to it, as I always do when I go to Chicago and get to be at Wrigley. It's the greatest thing going. The only problem this week, probably won't get on the air much, the color analyst for this game is A.J. Przinsky. And if you've seen foul territory, and if you've seen A.J. banter with me and agitate me and make fun of my height, you'll know that he's going to do everything possible either to A, keep me off the air or embarrass me on the air. I look forward to the challenge, A.J., I'll see you in Chicago. All right, let's go now to the fan questions for this week. First, Brandon, the people's champ, Warren, asks, who is the most surprising player you could see moving at the deadline as in completely out of left field? Brandon, I appreciate the question. It is actually a great question. It is also a trick question. If I had any clue who the most surprising player at the deadline dealt would be, then I'd be investigating it and looking into it. But by very definition, I have no clue because we don't know who this guy is if he's coming out of left field. I can give you some possibilities of long shots. Jonathan India might be one. I hope Kirk Herbstreit's not watching. Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander, if the Mets continue collapsing, maybe they'll do something really crazy, pick up a ton of money to get those guys out. I don't see it, but okay. Wilson Contreras, he's doing a little bit better with St. Louis, but mm, that would be out of left field. But I guess the most out of left field would be the guy who was out of left field last year, Juan Soto. What if the Padres say, it's not our year. We're not going to sign Soto. Maybe we should just trade him. It's not happening. It's not going to happen, period. The Padres are in. They're going to be in. A.J. Preller is going to add, not subtract. But you ask me for some candidates, that's the best I could do. Doug asked, what is a realistic return for Shane Bieber? Better question from Doug here, and one that I maybe can answer a little bit more coherently. So Shane Bieber is a guy who a team can acquire and control for two pennant races. He is under control through the 2024 season. And we have templates 
for what that kind of pitcher has brought in the past couple of years. Now, Shane Bieber, a lot is going to depend on his performance. If he slides and isn't as good in the next four weeks, well, he's not going to be what Luis Castillo was last season or what Jose Barrios was the year before. I don't even know if Bieber can get to Castillo's level, period. But those guys brought pretty big returns, at least the way they were considered at the time. For Castillo, the Reds acquired Edwin Arroyo, their number three prospect, Noel V. Marte, their number two prospect, Levi Stout, number 13, and another minor league pitcher named Andrew Moore. That's four players for Luis Castillo, two of whom are really big prospects. Levi Stout will, remains to be seen, but those two infielders, Marte and Arroyo, they are highly thought of. The trade for Barrios between the Blue Jays and Twins, that was a little bit different, a little less successful from the Twins' perspective, though at the time, it was thought that the return of Austin Martin and Simeon Wood Woods Richardson was really good. Those guys remain in the top 11 of their prospects, according to MLBPipeline.com. Hasn't gone that well. Simeon Woods Richardson has struggled. Austin Martin is hurt again. But again, at the time of that trade, that was considered a good haul. So for Bieber, those two pitchers were under similar levels of control, one-plus seasons. He could command a very strong package, but it is going to depend just on how he pitches approaching the deadline. Third question from the 3 for 3 podcast, can Corbin Carroll repeat the same feat as Ichiro, Rookie of the Year and MVP? We touched on this a little bit last week, and it is an interesting question, but right now, Ronald Acuna Jr. is still the clear frontrunner for MVP. He's got Carroll in batting average, on-base percentage, and slugging percentage, and of course that means he has him in OPS. He's also stolen 35 of 41 bases, Carroll 23 of 25. These are both fantastic players having great seasons for first place teams. But right now, Acuna rates an edge, and I don't see him relenting as long as he stays healthy. Acuna Jr., to me, looks like a clear, clear front runner for National League MVP. All right, thank you for those questions this week. Thank you guys for watching, thank you for listening. You can subscribe to us on YouTube. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week. And actually, from a more typical location, my home base. No more of this undisclosed stuff. Spicy Ball is back for BetMGM sports players. Download the BetMGM sports app on iOS or Android or visit BetMGM.com. Sign up and deposit into your newly created account and place your first bet offer and receive up to $1,000 back in bonus bets if it loses. If the bet does lose, your bonus bets will be available once the wager is settled. Gotta use that promo code SPICYBALL. Always bet responsibly. Gambling problem or concern? Call 1-800-GAMBLING.